This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. My name is Eve Massingham, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland. Today, we're going to be talking about autonomy in space, the different applications for emerging technologies, including tactical-focused exercises for space warfighters and issues of space debris. To talk more about this, I'm delighted to be joined today by Captain Jesse Dumont. Jesse is a lecturer in the Department of Physics and Space Science at the Royal Military College of Canada. She recently returned from working at the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. She worked as a member of 18 Space Control Squadron and maintained the space catalogue of debris and satellites. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Uh, thank you, Eve, for inviting me. So, Jesse, you were a member of the 18th Space Control Squadron of the Canadian Armed Forces. In your words, what is the mandate of the squadron? So, the 18th Space Control Squadron is actually part of the United States Space Force. Uh, the mission, uh, sorry, the squadron uh, focuses on space situational awareness and support of uh, space launches, object and debris tracking, and human spaceflight. So we uh, provide 24-7 support to uh, the Space Surveillance Network, which, is, um, which includes radars and telescopes to track um, resident space objects. And we maintain the space catalog of the United States Space Command uh, and the data sharing program of the United States. So we're also helping um, foreign government and commercial entities with the data that we're providing for them. And we uh, conduct analysis uh, on that data. Great. Um, and what was your specific job uh, during your detachment there? So I was an orbital analyst which means I was in charge of tasking the Space Surveillance Network for uh, tracking those uh, space objects. And then uh, when we receive the data, we conduct advanced analysis, uh, including sensor optimization, conjunction assessment, human spaceflight support. Uh, I was focusing on uh, re-entry assessment, so re-entry of space object in the atmosphere as well as uh, breakup, launch analysis, and, uh, you know, uh, other on-orbit maneuvers uh, or such. There are a few uh, terminologies they use there that are perhaps sort of not so familiar um, to some of us. Can you uh, perhaps explain what, what do you mean by sensor optimization? Uh, that's just a calibration of the sensors to make sure they provide the same uh, data, essentially, uh, within the same uh, specification. And how, I mean, how many sensors are we talking about? How much sort of different, different data is, is being collected? Oh, uh, we're receiving millions of observations per day. Um, obviously, we're not seeing all of this or analyzing all of this by a human. Um, some of it is done independently by the systems that we use. Uh, but some of them will cause problem to the system. And then it's going to be flagged to the operator to look at it. And then we're going to perform, you know, manual analysis on it 
And we're talking about uh, more than 20 sensors um, scattered all across the globe. Well, I think that links in really nicely to, to then asking sort of this um technologies uh, questions that that we're really wanting to uh, discuss in this podcast and this idea of the fact that you have systems that are really analysing a lot of the material and then bringing to uh, the attention of uh, the humans uh, what ones of, of particular concern. Um, so, I mean, I guess the sort of starting point, one of our first questions is, um, are you seeing um, significant changes uh, to the way that things are being done and, and, and to um, the work that is possible um, in this area because of uh, an increasing automation um, or independence, um, to use the word you used, uh, of these systems? To be honest, I haven't worked a whole lot with, you know, controlling the actual space systems because I was part of the analysis of just observing where they are or what the orbits is. but. Um, yes, there's definitely there are definitely changes to how organization will um, use those systems and the increasing automation for system just means that there are less and less humans involved in how um, you know in operating the actual system, but there will always be some kind of human interaction you know uh, with the satellites to make sure it works properly or it does what we we want it to do, or it's in good life status. And when you say less um, humans sort of in, involved in, um, you know, doing the work of the systems, is there perhaps more uh, humans involved in the oversight because there is so much more information being created? Uh, more human involved in what, sorry? Sorry, in, in the oversight of the systems because there's so much more information um, that, that is, I, I guess the systems and this automation is doing so much more. It's generating so much more data. Um, and whilst you might have less people involved in the collection of data because automation is doing it, is there perhaps more people involved in the oversight of the data? Yes, definitely. A lot of people involved in how the data will be, you know, collected, like which data do you want to collect? Uh, what data they collect and like what that data means to the mission or what, like, you know, the purpose of the space system and much less people in data collection, definitely. Now, one of the things you've been particularly um, involved in is um, looking at uh, space debris. Um, and obviously there's a number of different sort of applications of, of autonomy in space. And it seems that perhaps um this idea of a space debris space debris disposal systems is one of them. Is that something you can tell us a little bit more about? So I'm not involved in designing space debris disposal system, but obviously being in 18 space control squadron and seeing all those debris around the planet, uh, we do develop this idea that you know we have to find a solution to uh, collect space debris. It will eventually have to be autonomous, but at this time, uh, we haven't seen any space debris disposal system that are, uh, you know, operational and can operate by themselves. It's, it's still at the development stage um, to collect those debris. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So there's this idea that you would potentially be able to use um, uh, a system with 
either an autonomous system or a system with a high level of automation to collect the space debris. But until that's developed, it's it's just not possible to do anything about the space debris or I, I guess what's happening at the moment, just the calcul- the analysis of it. Uh, so at the moment for space debris, uh, we have this, um, I guess it's not a law, it's, it's kind of a rule that the, some countries have signed to, um, and I cannot name this actual um, like rule, but uh, the, essentially the satellite in low Earth orbit, which are closer to the Earth, have to be, uh, essentially have to be able to deorbit within 25 years of the, the end of the mission. And when they deorbit, uh, obviously the 18 Space Control Squadron, as long as the object is uh, you know, uh, big enough for the sensors to follow, we're gonna be tracking it uh, on re-entry uh, in the Earth. If it's above one meter square of RCS, which is um, radar cross-section, that's what it means, RCS, we will be tracking it and um, do um, uh, essentially we're going to try to see where it will land, but it's it's a it's a very uh, fuzzy science to try to know where it will uh, actually crash on Earth. So, I mean, do, is there sort of a geographic range that that you you give? You know, when you're expecting reentry of something, there's like it'll be in this vicinity, and we're we're talking like a a square kilometer or are we talking hundreds of hundreds of square kilometers? <laughs> hundreds and hundreds, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, we try to give like an actual like precise coordinates uh, for where it will land, but our, you know, uh, it's going to be plus or minus 15 minutes in time. And that's about 6,000 kilometer at the speed of like, you know, a space system. So we had this rocket at some point that was, you know, going over New York City and people were, you know, panicking about it. But really it ended up landing in Africa. And that's that's what space science is about. It's just it goes so fast, it's just so hard. But we were actually really happy about our predictions because it was actually close in terms of, you know, space analysis. In terms of space, it was close. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> I remember, you know, learning lots about how large the solar system was um, when I was at school. So that kind of makes sense. Um, So, I mean, I guess that kind of leads to uh, thinking about, so um, if you're looking at increasingly, increasing the use of automation to solve some of the space challenges, one of them is potentially as a a space debris disposal system, but the other is perhaps um, in relation to improving the accuracy of those calculations or the ability to predict where where something is is going to to land are both of those uh things being looked at currently uh i think they are being looked at by commercial entities more to develop like a new system obviously it's expensive to develop new systems that can autonomously um you know do predictions like this um but it is possible um obviously Having a human behind a computer, I think it's best because you can see if it makes sense, <laughs> if the prediction makes sense, or um, you can modify some of the data with you know what you see as an operator instead of what the computer gets from the sensors. 
And we definitely saw, you know, better prediction from a human operator than from the autonomous aspect of it. That's really, really interesting. I mean, one of the things that has come up quite a lot in this podcast and in the various discussions um, that our research team have had is around this idea of, um, you know, what actually is autonomy? Uh, what are we talking about when we talk about autonomy? And, um, you know, there's there's obviously people who sort of talk about levels of autonomy um, and there's um, clearly, you know, the idea that you, you might have a system that might have some functionality that has a degree of automation or uh, even a degree of autonomy. Um, how would you describe autonomy and what sorts of devices um, do you think we're talking about when we're talking about autonomy? Um, do any of them exist or is everything that you're talking about in um, Space Force application really uh, a system with varying levels of automation? Uh, to me, the autonomy is more the ability of the system to operate independently of external control. Now, like you said, there's some scale to that. And I think all space systems will have some sort of, you know, human oversight on what they do. But obviously the mission can be, um, you know, the goal of the mission can be achieved autonomously. So more like if we see, um, you know, GPS systems, uh, satellites or uh, communication satellites, they will perform their mission mostly autonomously. But the human will oversee the calibration of it or like we talked about earlier, the optimization of the data to make sure it makes sense and they, you know, all the satellites are providing good data. So it seems that there's clearly um, a very important role for uh, humans uh, as these uh, devices go forward and, and the technology um, develops. Uh, and I suppose that links into uh, a question that I have about wargaming. Now, we previously had a, a colleague of yours from the Canadian Armed Forces uh, talk about, about wargaming and, and give us some examples of how uh, technology has enabled um, Canadian Armed Forces wargaming to, um, for example, continue through this uh, COVID-19 period. Um, and I understand that a lot of your work has been focused on space awareness. Um, so I'm wondering if... Um, you've been involved in any sort of war games in space or, or elab can you, if you can elaborate on the experience of, of war games in space um, and have any examples where autonomy or varying levels of automation might have provided a benefit to that conduct of warfare or the war game? Uh, so I was, um, the only experience I have in space war gaming was uh, during the exercise space flag that I participated to in uh, August 2019. So it's been a while. Um, we, it was the first edition of that exercise and uh, it happened in Colorado Springs. It was the first edition that they um, invited uh, foreign military to participate to the exercise. And um, I was invited to that exercise. I, um, I was the deputy mission commander for the essentially the first day. And then I was the mission commander on the second day. So I was the first uh, foreign mission commander to that exercise. It was, uh, and then on the third, I was the essentially just the space of awareness expert um, to the mission commander. So my experience with wargaming is that we are still developing the 
techniques to board game in space. And because of um, uh, because of the way uh, we brought a lot of uh, foreign military, including Australian military uh, and UK military into the game, we had to do this on, it's going to sound weird, whiteboards. So it was not autonomous at all. Uh, I know sometimes you can do the exercise with actual uh, systems like computer systems and just input what they want in the computer and then they will you know, get the result of it autonomously by the computer. But for us, we had to do all the calculation by hand on whiteboards, uh, which for me, uh, being my expertise is in orbital mechanics, that was great. I can do that. <laughs> and uh, so what I can say about this is that we're still developing, you know, what is wargaming in space and what we can do with this. Uh, but the goal is to be able to uh, eventually implement uh, and integrate, you know, space in all part of the operational planning process or the OPP in the joint force so that, you know, we can, we can identify the, you know, the friendly and space, friendly and adversary space capabilities in the, you know, in the planning process and then in conducting operations. So like I said, there was not much autonomy in what I did for wargaming, but it does help us develop, you know, new ways of doing, um, conducting operation in space with our allies. Your, uh, your response there was uh, making me reflect on the, the Hidden Figures uh, movie where the, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the mathematicians there with the, with the chalk um, on the whiteboard doing the, doing the re-entry figures um, for, um, uh, for, for the committee. Um, it seems that we have come a very, very long way in, in certain respects and not so far um, in other respects. Um, but it sounds like, you know, the, the vision for, uh, for having space wargaming will allow you to, down the track, have sort of all domains, the, you know, the Navy, the Air Force, um, the, the Army and, and the Space Force sort of all integrated into this same planning um, process and the same uh, wargaming operation is that sort of the the ultimate goal and obviously to to allow things to happen as part of the war game in a way that doesn't actually result in destruction of um, you know valuable resources yes yeah, so land maritime and air operation will rely uh, like heavily on space technologies in their operations and yet obviously our goal is to um, to you know, include that in the OPP. Um, but we were also playing a bit more with the overall mechanics. So like a war in space, like what would it look like? What does it look like to, you know, just do a war in space or, you know, launch rockets from the ground and destroy a satellite? Like, can we, can we do this? I'd like to just return to one of the very first things that you mentioned, which was uh, the commercial entities in space. And it's come up uh, a couple of times in, in the conversation because it's very clear that 
satellites have long been serving um, both military and civilian purposes and and not just satellites but other space infrastructure as well um, interchangeably. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, is this an issue that, that has come up? You, you mentioned that some of the work um, is perhaps being done better or more comprehensively or at least uh, more quickly uh, by the commercial entities because of the resources that are required um, to sort of monitor uh, space and, and engage in space. Have you seen uh, the dual use of these infrastructures as, a, as an issue, as a problem? Um, and do you think there are issues for civilian protection that arise from that? That's a big question. <laughs> Let's go one by one. Uh, so I have seen the dual use of satellite, obviously, because it, it is known that, you know, most of the space technologies have been developed by the military. So, you know, missiles have become space rockets and GPS have, uh, you know, first been um, designed to help the U.S. military on the ground. And then it was you know, repurpose for civilian, per, you know, use uh, for free too. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, other uh, G GNSS system, which operate just like GPS, like GLONASS from Russia or Galileo from Europe. Uh, it's the same. They've all been uh, designed for dual use between military and civilian. I personally, I don't see the issue to that to use them uh, interchangeably, if you will, because we're using them for the same reason. So if I'm using navigation system, I just want to go from point A to point B. Civilian wants to go from point A to point B. Now, obviously, military won't use that destination for the same reason, but I don't see the issue in that. So I'm not an expert on, uh, you know, law, so I cannot... You know, it's a little bit out of my line for this, for law. But what I can say from what I know from the academic side that I learned about it is, you know, everything is basically based on the Outer Space Treaty, which you probably heard about, obviously. And as long as military entities use space for peaceful purposes, we're good. So they don't want to use them for, you know, as long as we don't do any aggressive move in space or from space to earth, we can use it. So for me using, you know, satellite system interchangeably for dual use between military and civilian, they shouldn't be separate. Like we can use them for the same purpose. For example, in Canada, I was, uh, you know, part of the process of, uh, at the Canadian Space Agency for the design of the Radar Site Constellation Mission, RCM. I was a, an intern in, at the CSA uh, with the project manager of that system. It's a um, remote sensing uh, system that will look at pictures uh, of the Earth. And it's a Government of Canada space-based system that serves both civilian and military purposes. Obviously, we're using it to get pictures of the earth and we're using those pictures for a different reason but it's peaceful purposes at this point it's just pictures like google earth thanks yeah no that's a really a really interesting answer and i think it's a 
a question that's worth asking to people who who aren't lawyers, as well as to, as asking to lawyers um, uh, to to reflect on. So that's really really interesting. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for your time uh, this evening and 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 this morning, uh, Canadian time, um, and for being a part of our podcast. It was really interesting um, to listen to uh, some discussion about the sorts of technologies uh, that exist and the, the sorts of issues that are arising, um, and the sorts of possibilities um, that military uh, use of space um, is is posing. So, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast and have a good night. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.